This is the podcast for you if you love your podcast with a little bit of chat, a little bit of industry news, and a little bit of sprinkling of surveying geekiness. You're not alone, my friend. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub with me, Marion Ellis. And today's podcast is just that. I'm speaking to Charles Trowcraft and Neil Hewitt about fire safety and in particular thatch properties. Welcome to the podcast today. I've got a really juicy, interesting podcast on thatch, which some people might switch off at. (laughs) How can thatch be nice and juicy? But I'm really pleased to talk to Charles Chalcraft and also Neil Hewitt. Do you want to introduce yourself, guys? Perhaps Charles first? Okay. Well, I come from a farming background. We were living in a tenanted farm that was thatched and had a leak. And uh, a friend who was a master thatcher told me what to do. And so I patched the roof and then it went on to rethatching it, which was somewhat daunting. And uh, I couldn't, I was at the stage in my life where we were milking cows and I went ahead and thatched it and it worked. And then, so I went on thatching and uh, I had a lot of help with the, with the ins and outs of it. And then I was thatching full time for 14 years. And uh, my work was of sufficient standard that um, it was approved by the Devon and Cornwall Master Thatchers Association they send people out to inspect, and I didn't get in first time because it wasn't quite good enough. But uh, after that, I was I was full time. And uh, anyway, that I I had an allergy against the fungal spores, and so I had to stop thatching. And then when the home information packs came in, I trained as a, a home inspector, and I've sort of gone on from there. So you started off living and breathing thatch. And I've made a career out of it. <laughs> Excellent. You're the best person to have then to uh, to ask questions. And uh, we've got Neil here, here today. Hello, Neil. Morning. Yes, I've sort of come into thatch more or less by default because in this part of the world in Suffolk, it's got the second highest number of listed properties in England. So therefore, a lot of the properties happen to be thatched anyhow, mostly much, much older properties, usually timber frame. Uh, particularly around this area in mid-Suffolk, you go to some areas and virtually every single house is timber-framed and has a thatched roof. Mostly reed, because that's very, very popular around here, although it doesn't always sit well with the conservation officer. Some straw as well, which tends to be a bit more problematic. Biggest issue I've had recently is with the very, very wet winters we've had in the past few years, it's actually starting to behave a little bit more like the West Country, whereas around here it tends to normally is very dry. And I had one property recently, which I'd surveyed four years ago, straw roof, perfectly okay. And I happened to go back to it a few weeks ago. And the north facing slope has now got water penetration to about 50% of the depth of 18 inches. And at the eaves, you can literally grab hold of it and wring the water out like a sponge. But the paradox inside the loft, no water penetration at all. 
So that's going to be one instance where be inspected by a thatcher and then suitable repairs to be put in place. Wow. So that yeah. so you, is that due to climate change then? And Probably change is, actually. Normally yeah. the winters in East Anglia tend to be very dry. Indeed, the whole year tends to be extremely dry. But there has been some very erratic weather patterns recently. Mm. Um, so it could be very interesting what happens in the forthcoming years. Obviously, it's very topical about climate change. And it's the last thing I'd expect to find is literally sodden thatch. So it could be interesting to see how things progress in future years and how the thatch does progress, whether it does. Because normally reeds can have fairly good life to it. I never quote life to clients. I just, it's like saying how long is a piece of string? Mm. You can only give very approximate figures and various bits of literature do quote anything up to about 80 years per reed, which it may or may not achieve. But much depends very much on routine maintenance. It's got to be inspected very frequently and it's got to be repaired appropriately. Unlike most of the roof coverings, you can probably leave it for 20, 30 years without intervention. That needs regular inspection and ongoing maintenance as well, mm. particularly obviously with the wet winters we've got. So this is why um, I wanted you on here, Neil, as well, because you know a lot about more about that than I do. Oh, <laughs> as thank a, you. As a, as a uh, surveyor, yeah. so you can ask I assume you've not got, you haven't got many thatched properties in your area. No, not really. And as a surveyor, when I was um, what I call a jobbing surveyor, actually going out inspecting the, the properties, my patch was in South London. So, yeah, again, um, not much you know, sort of the, the, the high rise sort of um, built up urban areas of Streatham, Croydon, mm-hmm. but all the way down to the M25 and, and just below. And and it was a fantastic patch to learn from because it had such a diverse range of properties from your concrete jungles to your traditional semi-houses. But then also you'd have you know there's a couple of agricultural holdings clay pot houses and the odd thatch only a couple but it was a a fantastic patch to learn from but thatch is not something that I used to come across and now where I live you know in the Milton Keynes area there's not many thatches that you know that I I come across my work has changed but it is something that really interests me and I I I recently posted in the um in the surveyor hub and and LinkedIn I'll I'll share, share a link to it where I went on holiday to the Isle of Wight recently and I could see thatch everywhere. And so I was taking family pictures with thatch in the background. <laughs> and what's my kids? Uh, yes, that, that's why I commented on that photograph with your daughter's expression. Yeah, she was pulling faces and my, my son had his like thumbs down in the background, <laughs> you know, but they appreciated it. And a couple of the, the thatch properties, one had... um a teapot on top of it and another one had a yeah. couple of animals yeah. and uh, and things and so they got they got interested then but it was really really interesting it's just you know to notice when you go to different parts of the country on holiday or whatever you know the the, the dominant you know landscape and, uh, and architecture but there'll be a lot of people who are listening to this podcast now who don't come across that so Charles could you give us a bit of a brief sort of history of that I mean you know was there a point you know, where all properties were covered in thatch in the past or, you know, tell us a bit of a background to it. I, certainly, I, I think the the earliest building rakes was in 12-something when London banned the building of new thatch properties because of fire, but they obviously had a lot of, um, a lot of thatch there anyway. It, it is the oldest of building roofing materials. Britain, there are several different types there is water reed, which is Norfolk reed, but 
the best Norfolk reed stays in Norfolk. The rest of the country uses uh, imported water reed, and, and that can come from all over Europe and Far East and, and Turkey and, uh, yeah, all over the place. So that's water reed, and that is pretty well universal around the, the, the southern part of England anyway. Then you have combed wheat reed. This is special you know, wheat straw. So wheat straw is used for two different types of thatching. One is comb wheat reed where the straw is cut with a binder. It is then stooped for three or four weeks so that the grain can, and straw can dry, which is a very critical time for weather problems. And then the then it, it is stored in a barn and when it is ready, it goes through a special thrashing machine with a what they call a coma, it's another attachment on the top. And so that it takes out the grain and bent straw, broken straw, and then ties it up into bundles and it is usable. And it is important to add that all the ears are at one end and all the butts are at the other end. Whereas long straw type of thatching, which really is from the New Forest at eastwards, and you'll have long straw in East Anglia and up into the Midlands, but you, you don't find long straw thatching in the West Country. And that is where the, 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 it, 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 the straw goes through a thrashing machine, and so it comes out slightly crimped in places, and you can have the butts and ears at the same end. And that is a totally different type of, of, of thatching. So but apart from heather and everything else, those are the three principal methods of, of thatching. And just to confuse the issue, um, a combed wheat reed is called reed because it goes on the, the roof the same way that reed does, with its ears upwards. <laughs> but um, I'm not going to get into the technicalities of it all, but the, basically those are the three different types of thatching in the country. So it's interesting that reed grown locally tends to stay locally. But in terms of the imported reed has that then been affected by the whole brexit situation and and as leaving europe as far as i understand it's still coming in but it it uh, prices have gone up somewhat mm. so you know i come across a lot of homeowners i'm sure other surveyors listening will that see that chocolate box cottage with the thatch do you think consumers out there and uh, are knowledgeable about thatch or have they absolutely not got a clue? It just looks good. I can see Neil shaking no, his head. They definitely do not have a clue. Most buyers think of that chocolate box image, especially at the minute with so many people moving from the big cities. Hmm. So part, part time is trying to talk to people, usually on the telephone, and to explain to them the realities. There are various online sources of information that they can refer to. So it's the same really with any period of poverty. They must understand what they're taking on and they literally must genuinely fall in love and appreciate the property for what it is and that they're buying into a slice of history. So what's different about buying a property with thatch? I mean, apart from the the maintenance of it, you know, perhaps the, the cost, what's different about it? Well, I think the Daily Mail have a... a uh... <laughs> annually have have a competition to have a, a thatch cottage so uh, many people have a dream and uh, 
they are where where I am in Devon. We have either stone rubble built or cob, and uh, both of them seem to perform in in a similar way, where you they are cool in the summer and they are considerably warmer in the winter. And if you've got a lot of thatch on the roof, it it is very good insulation. And I think it's a big mistake to, for people to to fill their lofts up with uh, mineral wool insulation because it changes the whole atmosphere in the roof um, for, from a, um, a warm roof to a cold roof. So that's just, just one of the hesitations I have on insulation thatched roofs because um, the, the, the roof uh, itself will provide sufficient insulation if it's, if it's over 14 or 15 inches thick. In Devon, uh, in the West Country, we have the largest number of medieval roofs in the world because we never take the thatch right off. And sometimes you can have thatch that is uh, three metres thick, which does cause problems on old truss old trusses they they crack sometimes mm. so from a house purchaser's point of view it's like any period property has its quirks if you like but it like neil like you said it's about being respectful for the, the building that you're that you're living in what about from a surveyor's point of view so there'll be some surveyors who are neil like you sort of quite knowledgeable on thatch know perhaps how to report on it you know, for your average surveyor out there, if they see thatch on a property, if they're asked to quote to do a survey, should they run a mile or should they, what should they do? Can they work in conjunction with local thatchers to do um, a report? How does it work? I would say that surveying thatch is a specialist job and no one who has not had sufficient training or guidance should be surveying a thatch property. I mean, we have surveyors down here who will they will they may be very good at all the other aspects of the house and they will tell the homeowner i don't know anything about thatch but i'll i'll come and do a full survey on you anyway mm-hmm. on the property anyway which is a bit like me saying yes i'll come along i can tell you everything about the thatch but i can't tell you anything about the walls and there are probably many cases where incompetent surveyors have surveyed thatch properties um they've come to the wrong conclusions and the sales fallen through because of it and i've dealt with claims or come across claims in the past on thatch for lots of different reasons but again you know and i talk about this on the podcast time and again it's about knowing your skill knowing your expertise knowing where your the line is over what you do and don't report on and, and what you feel comfortable doing and so you Charles, you know, you've got this background in uh, in thatch, doing the job hands-on. I knew that you now run training programmes for people to yeah. get qualified so surveyors can do that and add it to their, their skill sets. Yeah. Do it, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've got two courses coming up. One, it was both in September, and there's one local surveying firm that is, uh, I think there are five surveyors coming from that firm. Mm. And this is the, the same course that uh, I, I used to do for Ricks, but I haven't done recently because I think they charge too much for that. Yeah. <laughs> Political. Um, yeah. And, I, uh, moving on, but I don't yes. don't disagree. You know, co- things cost at the um, end of the day, and, and and people should 
charge what they're worth and go go to the experts. We'll put links to your courses and your website, Charles, in the in the show notes for anybody listening to just pop over to the website surveyor hub and um you can find all the, the details there one thing i wanted to ask you about was well two things really one just to talk about fire safety but firstly just about uh, the skill so we talked about how the roof is put together the you know what it's what it's made of the the background but is there a skill shortage when it comes to thatchers i would say p- probably yes i think probably the average age of thatchers is uh sort of late 50s into the 60s there are younger people coming in, but quite often they're not prepared to put up with the dust, the weather. You don't have an income unless you're up a ladder. Yeah. I've scraped the snow off the roof before now and carried on. Um, I used to have a big tarpaulin. So you take the frost off when you take the the, the, the tarpaulin off. It's um, you, you, you do see all aspects of the weather. Mm. Um, so, so I guess then, like any trade, especially trade out there, if we don't have people coming through doing the work, then surely the reality is that thatch could start to to die out, or the cost will just become astronomical if we can't get the right people to do the work. Yes, I suppose so. But I think that there are sufficient number of there are people coming into it, mm. but it takes a long time to learn. It, it's a bit like. Um, learning how to drive a car you you don't actually start learning until you pass your test on oh, yeah is there is there a directory where people can find their local thatcher if yeah, um, the mayor has to re- gets a quote or, you know gets a request to quotes and think uh, you know yes or no is this for me but it's always good to signpost to a, an organization or a, or a list of who can find the right expert there are lo- local master thatcher associations they are either uh, you know, I belong to the Devon and Cornwall Master Thatcher Association, but there it says some of the counties combine, and uh, and I know that there's the East Anglian Master Thatcher Association, and these some of some of the people in there um, can be third generation Thatcher, and so they will all be in the phone book. The, the, the you will have a, a lot of people who are who choose not to belong to a master such as association who are probably just as good but it means that the, their work is not asked by their peers um you have the so that's the the, the local master thatchers association and then you have the national society of master thatchers and between them i suppose probably half half the number of thatchers in the country belong to one or other or so we can, we can put links to that again in the to some of those in the in the show notes so that people can... um yeah yes the, the obviously the individual uh, master thatcher associations will that there'll be okay well we, we can do what we can we'll put links to help yeah. signpost people so they can yeah. find and we can put some details in the blog yeah. um, um and uh, i was just going to say that um there are cowboys out there as well how do you spot them do they wear the big hats and ride a horse? <laughs> uh, it is. It is. It is very much the, the way that they thatch. You know, when when a, a a roof is meant to last in in the West Country, say eighteen years to twenty five, and they 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 pack up at uh, ten or less, and then you go back and have a look, and you find that the the depth of thatch is not sufficient. 
to do the yeah. job. Um, but there are all sorts of other problems with that, with it as well. It's just not just down to the skill or lack of skill of the thatcher. There are breathability problems and or lack of breathability problems. But um, it was really the um, the fireside that I was. Well, I was. I wanted to ask you. That's what I was coming on to. I wanted to ask you about that because fire safety, you know, sort of post Grenfell, it's all about fire at the moment and everything from surveyors struggling to get pi insurance you know to homeowners being concerned about fire safety getting insurance you know those kind of things you know tell me you know why why is fire safety such a concern when it comes to thatch well over 90 percent of the thatch fires are caused by wood burning stoves okay <laughs> which is the other part of this sort of chocolate box Wood-burning stove, nice little cosy cottage with a thatch. Yeah, and and you have situations where you've got a big inglenook fireplace and in a quite a small room, and um, it is uh, to to put a tiny wood burner in looks funny and Mm. out of proportion. So you go ahead and you put a a big one in, and all the proportions are right, except that 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 stove is certainly one that I use as on my course as, a, as an example. the The room needed a four and a half kilowatt stove, and it had an eleven and a half kilowatt stove in it. So you light that, you open all the doors, open all the windows, just so that you you know it's it's a bearable temperature. Mm. But you've also got an awful lot of heat going up the chimney. And some of the new wood burners, as far as I understand, you can get up to four, five, six hundred degrees centigrade going up the, the, the chimney. Wow. So it sounds uh, like an accident waiting to happen, really. Yeah. yeah. And there are there have been problems with single skin stainless steel flues being supplied when they shouldn't because they are only licensed, as far as I understand, for gas appliances. Uh, and uh, they get put in on a DIY basis. And uh, so you end up having the, the the flu weaving its way up the chimney and touching brick on the way up. And you only need about 200 degrees centigrade going through a brick before you can have charged straw on the other side. There have been a number of research um, into, into thatch and thatch fires, and I know that the one group was researching heat transfer through the chimneys. I've certainly stripped thatch away from chimneys and found charred straw. There is a, a company called Burgoynes who are fire specialists, and, and they have produced a report um, on, a, on a number of properties, and they found that most of the fires were were coming out of the top of the chimney rather than going through the through the chimney. And the NFU and Historic England also produced a research program, and they also concluded that the majority of the fires were caused by heat uh, by embers coming out of the top of the chimney. I would prefer to say it is chimney problems rather than pointing in any particular one because uh, mm. the, the it all comes down to uh, often how you light the stove 
what do you, whether you, you leave it, you light it and you open the door and you let it roar. So some chimneys, some thatch has caught a light within a couple of hours of being the fire being lit. You then get to that is not going to be a heat transfer job. That'll be one coming out at the top. Often the chimneys are not high enough. The guidelines are 1.8 above the thatch. And so that will help. Spark arresters, um, which is a cylindrical thing about 15, 16 inches high, which is just a double cone of, of stainless steel. I think there was a time when the insurance companies insisted on those, but the uh, the fire brigades um, now recommend that it shouldn't be used because they need to be taken down and cleaned twice a year. Which and if they're not, then they they, they and if someone is using uh, wet fuel, they will clog up. And so when uh, so that is then forming deposition of, of tarry material in the top of the chimney. And the um, if that catches a light, the um, spark arrestor glows red hot and then showers red hot steel all over the roof. It's interesting because maintenance of buildings cause such problems. <laughs> you know, you're ex- you're explaining the... Um, you know how it happens and and why and it makes perfect sense and yet most homeowners will buy a property and not maintain it properly and it, these are just accidents uh, wasting to to happen have you come across anything like this neil yes i mean there is an obsession with solid fuel fires um as charles was saying and most people tend to put in vastly oversized units to their living rooms and in is that, some is cases that, is that, i was gonna say is that a problem in you know with wood burning stoves and things is that a problem anyway it's a problem anyway even in non-thatched houses people will put in units that are simply far too large for the property so you go around and you'll find that people often say they hardly ever use it simply because it is so hot so then they tend to reserve it for christmas holidays etc so there are massive, massive issues around it. Aside from that, obviously issues about the type of fuel, pollution, particulates, mm. etc. In most, a lot of cases, homeowners are increasingly aware. Some of the insurance companies are making it much, much clearer about the stipulations with a solid fuel fire, height of the chimney, etc. And if you, for instance, say good, they insist on periodic inspections of the thatched roof, electric inspections and smoke detection in the loft as well. So if, if you get a responsible homeowner, with any luck, they'll have a, a good thatcher on board already. So quite often I'll go to a house and very often they can tell me who they're using. And in some instances, they've actually got a written report as well for the thatched roof. Uh, and that makes life a lot, lot easier. But I have expected to turn up at property one day and as I arrive, I expect to see the chimney on fire. I think it's going to happen one day. So, and I think, I don't not sure, I think a few insurance companies now are starting to insist on no solid fuel fires. Well, I know open that... Fire, the, open fires aren't so bad. I know that um, the NFU can offer discounts to have someone take out their wood burner and put in an LPG lookalike. Yes, that's a very, very good idea. 
Um, uh, and I mean that. <coughs> I think the figure I heard was was up to thirty percent discount. Um, yeah, whether that is still current or not, I don't know. But if that is the case, then it turns into a normal gas fire rather than a solid fuel, solid fuel fire. But it also saves the problem of having to technically have two-year-old wood drying in your in your various uh, outbuildings. There was, uh, yeah, I think that would. The, the, its management of fuel is is also important because uh, I know that there was a place we were re-ridging and the chap used to have uh, a trailer load of logs dumped outside the back door every autumn. And there they stayed with, without any cover on. And when we got to the chimney, which was a lovely stone granite ashlar chimney, it had four inches of tar at the top which we attacked with, with with a garden hoe. And then we found daylight yeah. coming through it. So. I, I had an ingle nook a few weeks ago, and I looked up at the register plates, metal register plate, and there was actually tar oozing down the flue. So I dread to think what that was like inside. So obviously that went in the report. But a lot, a lot of people often have a source of timber available locally. You know, in some cases, it can be broken up pallets, bits from houses, and that is obviously lethal for a thatched roof. Yeah, and you, so you really need to have less than 20% moisture in your logs. And uh, if you use the wrong fuel, you can rot your stainless steel flue out very quickly. Yeah. So I always recommend... For, for thatch properties that they have a, a CCTV inspection of the flues. Yeah, uh, but that generally put that down as well. In many cases, there's not even a heat test certificate for the installation of the flue. The installation goes back that far, or it's a DIY effort. Yes. Yeah, this all sounds like, I'm sitting here now thinking, these are accidents waiting to happen. Is there any rules or regulations about having thatch and what you need to do, anything anybody needs to be aware of? Well, it is um, in building regs that competent people should be installing wood burners and and, and flues. Yeah. Well, that's one and, part of the story, isn't it? It's the, the installation, but then the other part is, you know, the use of the, of the chimney, the use of the property, and then you then get into the, the maintenance, don't you? Yeah, well, I always say that flues need to be swept at least twice a year, mm-hmm. and uh, but the it, you know it it, it it goes round and round. That's the trouble. Yeah, never-ending list of things <laughs> things to, yeah. to do. Yeah, you know, when I was in doing the surveys in uh, in Croydon, typically with first-time buyers, I would say you know we talk through the report. And I would say, do you know what? Get yourself the B&Q DIY manual. It was $9.99 at the time. I remember they put it up to 15 quid and I was outraged. But in there, you know, it had it had pictures of, you know, how to, how to maintain your gutters, you know, how to do really simple things. And, you know, they, they used to buy it and they, <laughs> I should have got commission on it, you know, and and it just gave them a bit of an idea of what to do. I mean, in the, these day and age, you know, you've got YouTube and, you know, all, all of those things. But the skill and um, 
mean, is it a skill to maintain a, a, a thatched property with a wood burning stones? It feels like it it needs to be, and you need a certificate, a driving license, almost like a as a homeowner, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think um, there is there is probably scope to have a training course for homeowners on how to mm. it, it's how to recognise what needs to be repaired and when. Yeah. But um, so if we do with 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 fire, you can then come on to since I think the early. Um, I think it was 2006 when the first Dorset model came in. And the Dorset model was one where the there, there were lots of new thatched properties being built in, in Dorset, and they needed to try and have some method of uh, containing any fire problems. And so they brought in this thing where you have a, a, a fire barrier that sits on top of the rafters, and then you have a button on top of the fire barrier onto which you put the detaching material. Mm. Um, and so you actually make the, the thatch sacrificial. So if it catches a light, then it doesn't go through into the house. And um, I heard a, a story of um, a property in the Channel Islands that was built like this, and it caught a light. And according to the story, the fire brigade weren't too sure what to do. They didn't want to start ripping everything off because they would probably go through the fire barrier. So they, they let it burn and they put it out when, they, when it fell off. And after 17 or 18 hours of burning, when they did put it out all out, I think there was two scorched rafter tops. Wow. So, so that is, is how effective it is. And thatch burns at around 1,200 degrees centigrade. It's, it's hot. There are a number of different fire barriers around. And uh, the principal one that is, was, it was in the Channel Island one was a calcium silicate barrier. I think it was 12, 12 mil. They've now reduced it to nine, but it needs to be microporous so that it can breathe. There are there are currently problems with a lack of breathability in touch. I don't want to go too much into detail on that mm. for, from this because that's a totally different mm. thing. But um, but I guess you know as technology moves on and better materials become available you know like that that barrier 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 on the property in the channel islands then then that gives hope in many ways that, that these properties can be saved and it's using technology in the right way but as you describe it all i'm thinking you know with my customer hat on you know that's quite scary neil when you're reporting on these things you know you talked about sales falling through once people understand you know, thatch cost, what's involved. I mean, is there, and surveyors, you know, let's face it, we can be quite negative, you know, we were right about things. I mean, any tips on, on, on for surveyors on how to, you know, how to handle the customer or how to report in that respect? I think initially you've got to have that telephone conversation with the client to begin with. And ideally that applies in most surveys anyhow. I always send them links beforehand, local thatching association, etc. Also timber framing as well, so that they are aware 
in advance of what exactly what they're looking for, then it's a question of, in a sense, interviewing the owner of the property as well to gain good knowledge of their understanding of property. So in a sense, it's the confidence that the surveyor has in the owner. Mm-hmm. Because to a degree, we can become a little bit like psychologists uh, interviewing somebody and we think, oh, they're telling porkies or they're telling the truth. That, that's really interesting, Neil, because sometimes you go to a property and the vendor's not there and you get nothing from yeah. the estate agent. It sounds like with a thatch, talking to the vendor is a non-negotiable. Absolutely. You've got to get an awful lot of information out of the vendor. In most cases, the person is very knowledgeable about the house. They've already had a thatcher involved since they bought the house. They may have had a, a thatched inspection, perhaps when they bought the house, say, five, ten years ago. Some insurance companies insist on a periodic thatching report as well, usually about every five or ten years. So that all feeds in to that information that is coming through. Lots of other simple things like obviously fire safety as well, events, positions of trees as well come into it as well. So there's management of those trees at the same time as well. Even location of a property, I had a thatched roof house last tree on a converted barn. Very strange place. It had a bitumastic underlay from when it was converted about 15 years ago, but it was actually on part of an industrial estate. So I also put down there that the risks could be greater because you simply don't know what the industrial units are going to get up to. They could Somebody could be welding. Because there was actually a car garage right opposite that did body repairs. So I could imagine somebody getting a grinder, angle grinder out one day, grinding away, and then where will those sparks go? So there can be lots of external factors to bring into account as well. So I think a lot of it is about talking to the client and to the vendor and trying to get that sort of confidence in the whole process and that our clients as a buyers are fully aware of what they're taking on. And then hopefully that will feed through into buying the property. I've got another thatch property coming up next week. Again, it's a similar one which I surveyed five years ago. But my client already has got an awful lot of paperwork that has come through already about for a change. The person bought the property four years, five years ago. They've actually read through my report and actually actioned all the recommendations in the report, which is virtually unheard of. Oh, stop. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it. That normally never happens. Yeah. Yes. Well, I always say that um, it needs uh, an annual inspection by a thatcher. Yeah. And that repairs ought to be done on a little and often basis and that mm-hmm. will make the roof last longer because it's certainly in, in eastern part of the country a lot of the roofs are netted and the netting is designed so that it can be pulled and it, and it will all unravel if it's done properly and uh, the, the netting should not be nailed onto the wall plates it should be um, use, we use um, hazel spars and it, you can spar the netting up into the roof, which will hold it there fine. But if you want to pull it off, the spar will come straight out. I did hear of one story where a roof had been thatched on top of the netting. Mm-hmm. So that would have been a cowboy job. And so w- when the, the chimney did catch a light, the fire brigade couldn't strip the roof because the netting was there. So it, you know, it it's, goes all round. 
And I think if can we go on to the electrics? Mm, yeah, um, let's talk about them. Because yeah. uh, that is is I think the the next cause of fire, and ideally all the cables, if if there are cables in the loft, they should all be in conduit, and the conduits should run down the middle of the roof and positioning of the conduits is is often a problem because uh, people forget that as a thatcher you use the roof as a tool carrier and i have a an eaves knife that i was cutting the eaves off that is 18 inches long and very very sharp and i would stick it in the roof and we have shearing hooks and i know that the the long straw eaves knife is about four feet long if not a bit longer and so it's not difficult to go right through the roof into the loft and if there is a cable in the wrong place you can cut it and you won't know anything about it apart from the blue flash and that so electrics needs to be taken very seriously in the loft there are rodent problems i've got some amazing photos of what some people have attempted to make their cables rodent-proof. Downlights, there shouldn't be any downlights in upstairs ceilings, whether they're halogen or LED, because in in an open thatched roof, you get a lot of dust, and the dust falls into the top of the the LEDs, and that that is a fairly major fire prevention, fire risk. You can also get some of the halogen ones they give off an awful lot of heat. And there was one particular property where the underside of the thatch was within 300 mil of the top of the, the, the halogen light. Um, so, so, so that's, and there shouldn't be any open lights in lofts. So, you know, you, you have a strip light or an open button light, uh, they shouldn't be there at all. And if you go on the outside, uh, halogen lights, shouldn't be any nearer than than a meter away from the thatch uh, they're always just tucked up under right underneath the, the, the leaves but what they can do and what they have done is that the bracket rusts and then the light turns the other way up and it cooks the thatch and so it sets a light to the thatch so yeah and the uh, i was involved with a, an expert witness job last year where I think it was the house was rethatched in 2008, and the the supply cable came in off a pole and it ran along under the on the wall plate. The thatcher noticed that there was a scuff on the armored cable, and the company came out to repair it. And then ten years later, the repair fails, and the satellite to the house. So there are all sorts of Supply cables generally will be armoured, and they they do run along wall plates, and there, there shouldn't really be any other cables running along that are not not not, not armoured. Charles, is this something that the thatcher can advise on? You know, in terms of the you know sort of the, the chimneys, the liners, the wood burning stoves, but also then the electrics. I'm just thinking from surveyor's point of view. You know, it's helpful in their reports or in conversations to say, you know, if you're doing anything to the electrics, get your electrician to speak to your thatcher if they've never 
you know, put electrics in a, or, or maintained a property like this. You know, same for anybody installing wood burning stoves to make sure that not every, people aren't working in silo because that's where these things happen. You know, no one goes there intending to do a bad, a bad job necessarily, unless you're a cowboy. But getting people to talk to each other is sometimes just the start, isn't it? You know, to to get these things resolved with, with the, the Dorset model. The Dorset model is recommending that all cables should be in, in a steel conduit. There is a, I, I had a rebuild that I had to do and do a survey on, and that hadn't, had, had, that had no cables in conduit. Mm. I won't mention the, the, the uh, electrical um, competence board, but the electrician had this as a, an example for his his competence so the next person further up the chain came along and inspected it and he passed it all then when i queried that it it was a rebuild and this is in devon i was told oh well the dorset model only is, is relevant in dorset <laughs> and this was a a, a major competence mm. board I remember having the this conversation with the head of Devon Building Control, and uh, he was utterly speechless for, for quite can, a long time. I can imagine uh, because the the Dorset model is adopted by many local authorities as being mm. the, the being a requirement for newer build properties. Because it doesn't matter what these things are called; it's about what the content is and the yeah. reason that you're doing it at the end of the at the end of the day yeah Charles and Neil it's been really really useful I think lots of surveyors listening to this will have found this really useful today we've got lots of hints and tips and we'll we'll put these in the show notes and I'll also put together a, a blog with some details in and how they can surveyors can get in touch with with Charles if there's any um if they're interested in taking up any of your courses I think it sounds like an additional um skill to have particularly if you're doing that kind of work um it's so important but thank you very much for your time today okay well thank, thank you. you both very much hey thanks for tuning into the show today i really hope you enjoyed it you can find the show notes and links to any guests and resources we've mentioned today on the website lovesurveying.com and don't forget to show your support by buying me a coffee or you can rate, review and follow the podcast on your usual podcast platform. It really does make a difference and helps spread the word and reach a wider audience of surveyors who just love what they do. See you next time.